Good morning. It is uh, a thrill to be here. Um, I have to be on my best behavior because my bride came with me uh, today, Lynn. So act interested, even if you're not. Uh, just make me look good. That's all that I ask, all right? Um, one of my first uh, jobs out of, of college was as a group home counselor. Uh, we worked with uh, specifically teenage boys between the age of 12 and 17. They all came out of juvenile hall. They all committed crimes because they were addicts, drugs or alcohol. And, um, and so rather than serving time in juvie, they came to this group home where we kind of tried to get them, if you would, on the right track. It was here that I was introduced um, to different kinds of 12-step meetings. Uh, most of you all probably, even though you may not have been to a meeting, or you have to be familiar with them. Because if you know anyone who's trying to get over any kind of serious addiction, somewhere along the line, they have come across or tried the 12 steps. In a lot of cases, uh, they found success with the 12 steps where they didn't, had never found um, success before. It is a worldwide um, organization that's led really by no one. There is no central offices. There is no leader. Um, it, is, it is truly led by the people for the good of the people, um, the very little money that they collect only goes towards paying the rent for wherever they're happening uh, to be and the snacks, but there's nobody. Even the books that folks write about uh, the anonymous programs, 12 Steps, um, generally speaking, the authors never take a dime. It goes back into the program. It's the nature of the program. What a lot of folks don't uh, know, though, is that the 12 Steps actually originated from several principles. And these principles originated in a Bible study. It's one of the secrets of the anonymous programs is that there is a, a Bible study called the Oxford Group that actually came together uh, desperately trying to uh, overcome what was overcoming them. And they took the, the scripture seriously and, and they observed and, they, and at, at the time it wasn't anyone wasn't the professionals trying to help anyone. It was, it was the desperate trying to help the desperate. And out of this, these 12 steps originated. Um, Dr. Bob specifically pointed to three segments in the Bible that the scriptures overall helped. Uh, one would be the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The entire book of James and 1 Corinthians 13. Were the three main passages. Um, I'm not going to go through these in detail. If you're interested in them, the 12 steps, I've I got a little handout, as well as a scripture that kind of supports each. It's on a table. As soon as you come out here, you'll see a little table on the right hand. They're sitting out there if you'd like to take a look at those. But the first three steps really have to do um, with our need for a higher power. We can't do it ourselves, and we need a higher power. The steps four through nine, and this is really interesting. Remember, the, the heart of this is to help you recover from a, an overwhelming addiction, alcohol, drugs, eating, uh, pornography, whatever the case may be. And the, and the middle steps, four through nine, all have to do with a moral inventory, where am I messed up, confessing where, that I'm messed up, and making restitution for being so messed up. And then step 10 is just saying, hey, you know those steps four through nine about being all messed up? I need to continue that process every day. Step 11 is, you know, that whole idea in steps one through three about that God is the center of this. I need to continue to seek God. And then step 12, I got to share this with others. 
I got to share this with others. Now, it, here at Current, um, this summer, they've been in a series called Seasons of the Soul. We're looking at the Psalms. And the wonderful thing about the Psalms is they're not necessarily trying to uh, solve a problem like many of the letters are, or, or even describe a, a, an amazing event that happened. Um, the Psalms are somebody's heart. A lot of times, David, but not exclusively, being poured out. You see the good, you see the bad, and you see the ugly. And so today, we're going to look at Psalm 32, specifically at the power of confession. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm actually excited about this, because it's interesting that, that if you look across the world and you look at the tw- people that are involved in the 12 Steps, that this program, which no, you know, has Christian roots, but doesn't really, no one, they don't open up a Bible. They just say, here are the steps. But people who get in recovery, folks who find freedom from something that's, that's overcome their life, at the center of that are steps really four through ten, which all have to do with confession. I don't think that's uh, by accident. So if you have a Bible, or again, you just follow on the screen, you open up to Psalm 32. We just read it. But the whole idea is, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. In other words, if you want to be blessed, for some, if you want to be in recovery, if you, if you, want, to, if you want to find a, a something in your life that's missing, then there's an issue that needs to be addressed. And here he says specifically, whose transgressions are are forgiven. This, this, this word, transgression, really means just crossing the line. We've all done that. And, and if, you've, if you've ever done it and you've seriously crossed the line, you didn't just dab your toe, it wasn't just a, a little thing, but man, you, you went over the wrong line. If whoever it was that you offended finally got to the point where they forgave you, they didn't just tolerate you, but they forgave you, weren't you blessed? Weren't you blessed? We'll get back to the whose sins are covered. Verse 2, blessed is one whose sin the Lord does not account to them. This word sin, also translated iniquity, means twisted. This isn't you just stepped over the line. The truth is there's something inside of you. There's something about our character that's twisted. But this person is blessed. Why? Because the Lord doesn't count that against them. He doesn't, it's, it's, a, it's a, that whole idea of count against is like, is, it's like a bookkeeping term, Right? They, they owe this debt, but we're not going to make them pay it. And then it ends with this line, and whose spirit is no deceit. I, this, this one hit really home for me this week because one of our kids got caught um, in something that's been chronic a long time. And of course, they're sorry. But as a parent, you've got to ask, okay, are they sorry because they feel they were wrong, or are they sorry that they got caught? Because you know those are two very different things. And if you're sorry just that you got caught, which is really what sorry means. I'm sorry that you're hurt. I'm sorry that you have an issue with this. I'm sorry that, you know, that now I'm in trouble. But man, that was fun. And as soon as I can, I'm going back. That's that whole idea here of and who, in whose spirit is no deceit. And it's they're honestly seeking this forgiveness. Now, there's a line in here, that, verse 1, it says, whose sins are covered the, um, the rabbi, uh, uh, Rashi, which you know I love to kind of go to him because it gives us an idea of what the Jews are thinking of this. He says that basically this idea is that God 
conceals our sins. He conceals the psalmist's sin. But here's the deal. It's still there. I don't know if you've ever had something, put something really stinky in your outside trash, and it just like smells up the whole area, and so, you know, you throw some dirt on top of it, you throw some, maybe some leaves, some other trash, and it kind of kind of dampens the smell. But here's the deal. It's still there. And this is that idea. In, in essence, is, is that God covers over the sin, but the reality is it's still there. Paul actually quotes this scripture to say how it's different now that Christ has came. In Romans chapter 4, it'll come up on your screen. It says this. Paul writes, Now to the one who works, in other words, falls the rules. Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, you work 40 hours, you show up, they hand you a paycheck, you don't like go, hey, thanks for the gift. You don't do that. You go like, you owed me that. That was the work that I did. So it's not a gift. However, verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited at righteousness. It's different. It's something that God gives them because they trust that God, through Jesus, took care of it. And then he quotes this passage. David says the same thing when he speaks to the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. See, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the work is what, God, what was due God. And by the way, our good works are what's due God. But we came up short. And so for a while, he covered up the sins. But one had to come to actually pay the price, and that was Christ. And now our righteousness, our right standing before God isn't something that we deserve. It's something that Christ did on our behalf. It's truly a gift. Now, here's the thing. This is where human nature begins to go, ah, that just seems like a cop-out to me. I don't have to worry about it because God took care of it. It just seems like you want to ease your own conscience. It just seems like it's an avoidance of, you know, picking up yourself by your own bootstraps. And interestingly enough, this is one of the, the main kind of uh, questions and wrestlings that they get actually in the recovery programs, folks that are trying to overcome things that they truly are powerless over. They just have a hard time admitting it. It says this in the, in the AA Big Book. That's the, the main literature book that they go through. It says, we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our Creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is the way of weakness. Paradoxically, it is actually the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men and women of faith have courage. They trust their God. And the truth is, it does take great courage. It takes great faith to trust someone else to take care of something for yourself. I mean, it, it's commendable if you were to kind of say, hey, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall off this stage and I'm going to go and I'm gonna measure out you know, I weigh so much, and I'm this wide, and, and I put down a mattress and whatnot, and yeah, I've taken, and I fall off. It didn't take much courage, though. It just took some thought. What would take courage is to line up a few of you and say, I'm falling off. I hope you catch me. That's courage. It takes courage to trust that God can do for us what we cannot do ourselves. It goes on in Psalm 32. It says, when I kept silent. My bones waste away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He's really talking about the pain of unconfessed sin. Now, now remember, um, 
this is a human experience. I, we're talking about it at church. And, and, you know, and you all are here for you know, seeking something spiritual. And, and, and it absolutely is spiritual. But it is a human condition. that when there, we have secrets, when we have things, um, it festers and boils. And we even, the counselors even talk about developmental arrest. Something happened at a certain age that is very deep, it's not addressed, and so they kind of, you kind of emotionally freeze at that age. That's not the Bible, that's just life. Now, the Bible just talks about it. But that's just life. When he doesn't address his sins, something deep down, this is the bones, was decaying. And that's the thing, you can't see on the outside, right? I can, I can guarantee you there's addicts in here. I also guarantee you this, you won't know by just looking at them. Matter of fact, the true addicts are usually the, the best at hiding. They're the best at projecting one thing on the outside and, and not letting people see that they are wasting away on the inside. There is a groaning all day long, and it's not a physical groaning. It is, it is more deeper and, fu- and fundamental than that. And it says that God's hand of conviction was heavy upon him. Your hand... And I, I don't, you know, there's two ways of seeing this. You can see this as the hand that's kind of pressing down going, you will submit. But you know what? In the Bible, at least with God's people, you don't see that. It's more the hand that kind of goes on the shoulder and says, I'm here. You know what you need to do. And it's, and it's, like, it's like the water's drying up is what it feels like. His strength is... is Right? Because what does it do? It takes great strength to just continue living a lie. And it just saps. Internally, it saps your strength, your will to live in a lot of times. In the book, 12 Steps Sponsorship, when you're helping folks, that's what sponsorship is, kind of like a coach. It says this, a 12-step expression is this, we are as sick as our secrets. It applies here. In other words, we're as sick as as our as like he is keeping silent about what's going wrong. The phrase means that when our secrets are kept secret, they fester and create problems for us. Only when they are revealed can they be healed. Only when they are revealed can they be healed. And this is one of the problems I think or challenges when we come to Christ. It's it's good to to say because a lot of times you're in a context and you're and to go before God and said, "Forgive me for my sin." That's a great first step. But what sin? Right? It's one, I, I'll, I'll give this for those of you who got young kids. I'll give this to you for free. One of the best parenting techniques is when your kids say to one another, I'm sorry, or they say, I'm, you know, I shouldn't have done this. You say, shouldn't have done what? Because it's one thing for, a, for one of my kids, especially go to another kid and say, I'm sorry. But there's a whole other level, level for them to say, I'm sorry. I saw that you had that, and I wanted it, and I rudely hit you, and that was wrong. Completely different. And the freedom comes from the latter, not the former. And that, and this is, I mean, this is the thing that should blow our mind. I don't think we look at this close enough, but just think about it. Here we have folks all over the world, different cultures, different backgrounds that are consumed by addiction. And for many of them, the heart of, of what they're consumed by, the thing that, gets, that begins to get them free from this is what? Letting the secrets out. 
admitting to folks, I'm messed up. Isn't that, that, that should make us scratch our heads and go, man, maybe we need to take a, a different look at this. Maybe we need to take a different look at, is, is truly every, every heartache something a counselor should do? Is, is, is every body ache something that aspirin will figure? Maybe there's something else going on here. I'm not, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying there might be another level here to think about. And then he goes on to this. Okay, so I'm wasting away. Verse 5, then I acknowledge my sin to you. I finally got it out, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is where confession comes in. In, in fact, and I don't know if this psalm has to do specifically with this, but this is exactly what happens in David's life. He uh, actually commits adultery, and then he actually has the husband of the woman he committed adultery with, he's the king, um, kind of killed without anyone knowing. It was, a, it was a military thing, but he set it up. And um, he's hiding. He's hiding. But then Nathan the prophet, God shows Nathan what's going on. And so Nathan goes to confront David, and he does. And as soon as his sin is out, David doesn't make excuses. He doesn't get mad at Nathan, who's the bearer. He confesses. And Nathan's instant response is, God will forgive you. Now, I will mention this, just for a side note. There were still consequences in David's life. His own family suffered because of that. But in terms of his relationship with God, in terms of the forgiveness for what he did, he received it on the spot. He didn't have to do penance. He didn't have to go on probation. All he had to do was sincerely confess. This is exactly what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and what purify us from all unrighteousness. In the Jewish mind, when it says, if you do this and he will forgive your guilt, one of the pictures that comes up is, um, is the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. You've probably heard, maybe you've heard that phrase, that person was a scapegoat. In other words, they're the one who took the blame. That actually comes from the Hebrew Scriptures. And there was a day for Israel where, where they took care of the sins of the, all the people. And basically what someone would do is one of the priests would go and they would lay both their hands on the head of a goat. And they would confess generally the sins of all the people. And in, in effect, the sins of the people then would, would go onto the goat, and then the goat was led out to the desert to wander away. They were a scapegoat. They bore the sins of the people. Of course, again, the goat was still around. The goat was, the sins really weren't paid for. They were just kind of ceremonially gone. But in Christ, he was the lamb that actually paid the price. So when he says, and he forgave me of our guilt. For the Hebrew, that means that the goat took it away. It got transferred to someone else. But for us, we know who the someone else is. It's God himself in Christ who took our sin. You see, as long as David covered his sin, God did not cover it. When David covered it up, God did not cover it up. But when David no longer tried to hide it, but he opened up, if you would, the wound, then God blotted it out. Then God covered it up. Again, in the book 12-Step Sponsorship, it says this. It says, we have embarked on a program of action that will restore us to sanity. 
That restoration, however, notice this, depends on our willingness to look at ourselves realistically and to endure the pain associated with facing what we have become. Confession's not fun. The fantasy of some easier, softer way, that's the American way, that will allow us to avoid that pain has kept a number of us from completing this step, the step where you confess, step five, and from maintaining our recovery. It is, it is my deepest conviction that one of the reasons that some folks hit a wall with God is that they hit a wall with confession. And Christ is really clear. He tells a, a story uh, um, to kind of illustrate real love. And he says one person was forgiven a debt this big, and one person was forgiven a debt this big. And so he asked the guy, the religious leader, well, which one do you think loved the most? And the religious leader said, well, duh, the one who's had the most forgiven, the most debt forgiven. And Jesus said, good answer. That's exactly the way it is in the kingdom of God. Those who know that they've sinned much actually love much. And many of us just kind of skate through and never really truly appreciate God because we're not willing to understand. You know the gospel that we're forgiven is for us for every single day. Every single day. I, as a pastor, every single day, there is areas in my life where I miss the mark. And, and let me just give you a little bit of secret. I think maybe I've shared this with you before, but it's worth repeating. The more I know about God and the more real I am with myself, I actually become a bigger sinner than I was 20 years ago. Now, if you were watching my life, you might assume I'm less of one, but you would be wrong. I am less of one in terms of some of the things I used to do. I don't want to do. I have more self-control. I have some maturity. I've, God has grown up some areas. But the closer I grow to God, the more I realize how much I fall short. That it's not just, you know, what, what uh, the things that you're not supposed to do. You know, smoke, chew, dance, or go with those who do, whatever the case may be. But it's just as much, Jesus really pointed out the things that we should do that we just don't do. He commended the Pharisees for their religiosity. Good job, you tithe, right down to the spices in your spice rack. Good job. But you kind of neglect justice and mercy. Those are kind of important too. And when we confess, when we understand that we are broken, even after years of walking after Christ, guess what grows? Our love. Our love grows. Why? Because his grace is so amazing that he continues to meet us where we're at, even after all these years. Verse 6, therefore, let all the faithful, hopefully that's you and I, pray to you, while you may be found, surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from the trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Basically, if you seek God, you will be delivered. This, when he says the faithful, he means those who truly, truly love God. Those who, who, who really do want to be delivered. Because the truth is, a lot of folks go into the program and they never clean sober. The, but for some Weird reason, they kind of like the way life works. It seems insane, right? But it's true. It's true. But those who are faithful, all you need to do is go to God. And I love this. He says pray. He doesn't say change. He doesn't say try harder. He says pray. In other words, the power's got to come from somebody other than you. 
But he also says, while you may be found, while God is there. In other words, don't wait till it's too late. He says, surely the rising of the mighty waters. I, I don't know if he has this in mind, but I think a good illustration would be Noah. See, there was a time when Noah was saying, guys, we need to change. We need to seek God. And he's building this boat in the middle of the desert, which is ridiculous, unless you think it's going to flood. And that is the time to repent. That is the time to, to kind of say, God, I want to get my life right. And all those who did entered in the boat. But once the door was shut and the rains came, it was too late. It was too late. But those who had entered in, the rising waters did not reach them. And then he just declares, you, God, are my hiding place. You're my safe place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I think this is really important because we, we love this idea of protect me from trouble, but we think it means there, no trouble will come. But if trouble never comes, you don't need to be delivered. The reason you need to be delivered is because trouble comes. It's, it's the promise. It's, it's not the promise. Like, there's no way we can promise our kids. Life's not going to get hard. You're not gonna, but here's our promise to them. To the best of our ability, and granted our ability is limited, but to the best of our ability, if mom and dad can come in and help, we will always be there to help. And that's what God says to us. And it results not just in, yay, God deliver me, but songs of deliverance. We sing about the things that are fundamentally in our lives. And a song is a way to codify it. A song is a way to remember it. A song is a way to share it. And that's what, what the psalmist is saying here. And then the, the tone switches to instruction. I think it's God to David, but it could be David to us. Either way, it's the same. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, but must be controlled by a bit and a bridle, or they will not come to you. Basically, just the idea here is heed instruction and don't stop being so stubborn, which I'm really good at. You can ask my wife. She's here. She'll gladly share that. What he's saying is God is speaking now to David. He says, listen, I will, I will direct you. I will, I'm giving you wise counsel. And I love this line. It's easy to overlook. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. First of all, just think of a, of a, of a parent and their loving eye on their child. There's several things that are going on here. First of all, that's the idea of a, of a parent who really likes their kid. It's, it's a position of favor. But it's also the best case scenario. I had a, I had a dad that was a, a pretty good dad, considering everything. He had, but he had had lots of kids. He had a couple marriages before he married my mom, and he had learned a lot. So I, I benefited from some of the mistakes that, that he made. And so for him, my brother and I joke about this. Um, dad could communicate a whole lecture with a glare, with a look. And if he ever clenched his jaw, whatever he was, you were going to stop, you humbled yourself, you did not want to go past the clenching of the jaw. He just had that. And, and, and in a sense, that's what it's saying here. Is we should have the kind of relationship with our heavenly daddy that he doesn't need to threaten with a rod. He doesn't need to, he can just say, ah, come on with a look, a loving eye, to guide us. Because he understands our nature. He understands our, our, our frailties. 
And we do need correction, but he prefer to do it with a loving eye than the rough hand of discipline. Matter of fact, even Paul writes this. He says, I'd much rather come to you in, in grace and encouragement than with a rod. Not necessarily mean he's going to beat anyone, but he doesn't want to be harsh. It's the same idea. And so he says, because that's God's heart, don't be like the horse or the mule, right? That if you want them to get to do something, what do you have to do? You have to put a bridle on them so you can get them to go right. You want to get them to, get them to go left. We'd much rather have you have, you know, those that really have a great relationship with an a, a animal they ride, right? They can get on without a bit and bridle and direct. But that comes out of a, a close, trusting relationship. And that's what he's saying that we should have. We shouldn't be like the horse that charges ahead or the mule that's so stubborn and won't go anywhere, but that our, our Father can lovingly guide us. A lovingly guide us and counsel us to a place of joy, to a place of unfailing love. Now, I will say that one of the, the challenges here in, in, in confession and in following advice is that sometimes we think, you know what, I, I just between, this, this is just between me and God. But even James says, you know, confess your sins to one another and pray for another. Why? So that you may be healed. Would you, would you believe that it was that verse, it was that verse that a lot of the 12 steps was based upon? Because they really believe, you know what, the Bible says if we confess, will be healed. And, and they were desperately wanted to be healed. Alcohol and drugs or whatever the addiction was, they destroyed their lives. All right, we're going to take the Bible serious. This is what it says in the book 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. At this stage, we have to confess to another person. The difficulties of trying to deal rightly with God by ourselves are twofold. Though we may at first be startled to realize that God knows all about us. In other words, we really don't need to confess to him. He knows. We are apt to get used to that quite quickly. Somehow, being alone with God doesn't seem as embarrassing as facing up to another person until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we've done so longer, so long hidden. Our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we have been honest with ourselves and with God. There's a power. An amazing power there. And by the way, I would just point out, too, that, that nor in the scriptures that say you have to confess to the pastor. It says to one another, and that's literally what it means, to one another. Verses 10 and 11 concludes this way. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who does everything right. No. The one who trusts in him. He says, I can't do it, but you can, and thank you for that. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. The result of this kind of confession, of this kind of honesty, isn't shame. See, that's the thing. I don't want to confess. I don't want because then I'll feel shameful. And we avoid that. Meanwhile, all the time, guess what we feel? Shame and terrible, wasting away. But once we get it out, we tell another person, the, the result is we feel an incredible, unfailing love, usually not just from God, but from people too, the person that we're confessing to. And I love this. We're not, we're not, God doesn't love us because of what we do, because we simply trust him. We trust the, our daddy. 
And I love here, he says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. What? You righteous. He's calling you righteous. Why are you righteous? Because you finally got it together? No. Because he makes us righteous. He makes us right with him. And it comes from our trust in him. Here's the, here's the powerful thing. They say about step five in the, in the 12 steps. Many in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, once agnostic or atheist, didn't even believe in God, tells us that it was during this stage of step five where they confessed their sins to another human being that they first actually felt the presence of God. It wasn't even in step three where they turned their will, or step two where they turned their will over to God and trusted him in step three. But it's when they told another person, and even those who had faith already, already knew Christ and his forgiveness, office became conscious of God as they never were before. Why? Because they finally, they finally let it out. They finally confess, you know what, the Bible's right. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And we got to stop pretending. That's, that was that whole deal about when they caught the woman in adultery and they all were like, we should stone her because that's what you know, the Hebrew Scripture says. And Jesus goes, great idea. Whoever is amongst you without sin, go ahead and cast that first stone. And the, and the first ones that dropped the stone were the old guys, right? Because they knew what the Bible said. As soon as I cast the stone, I'm saying I'm without sin. And if I say I'm without sin, I'm saying I'm like God, and then therefore I'm blaspheming and I should be have rocks thrown at me. But Christ, through Jesus, we are made. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, our lives do, as you confess, you do make amends. You do go on and, and, and try to do better. But it's not by your strength, it's by his strength. It's not, it's not because you're worthy, it's because he is worthy. And he just chosen to love and give that to you as a gift. So I want to just spend these last few moments and talk about the now what. The now what. What do we do with this? What do we do now? Number one is simple and not so simple. Pray. I know that seems like the spiritual answer, but here's, here's one of the reasons we do. Because the last thing I want to tell you is now what do you do and give you steps that you can do. Like you can solve your problem. You can't. Whether you're an addict, an extreme addict or not, you're broken. You cannot fix yourself. Only God can. So therefore, you've got to take it to him. You're welcome to take out a camera and take a picture of this because uh, it's kind of long. But here's a prayer that is prayed that I think is a good one. It says, God, please help me to complete my house cleaning of the soul by admitting to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. Please remove any fears I have about this step and show me how completion of it will remove my egotism and fear. That's, by the way, the problem right there is a lot of us don't want our ego to be wounded. Help me to see how this step builds my character through humility fearlessness and honesty. Direct me to the right person, and this is important. You don't want to just do this with anyone. Who will keep my confidence and fully understand and prove what I'm driving at. Then help me to pocket my pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past, so I may complete this step and begin to feel near to you. Near to you. What a wonderful prayer. Part of this is um, to try doing a daily inventory between you and God. That's, an, uh, that's the second thing that you could do. And, and, and it's, it's a daily inventory is the same thing as, you know, you're, you're going to go on a camping trip. You, you know you need certain items, and so you say, okay, what do I have and what, I, what am I lacking? You just, at the end of the day, you go back and say, okay, 
where was, not, don't just say, where did I sin? Because you'll, you know, you'll think of like the Ten Commandments, oh, I didn't murder anyone today, good, job, good for me, right? <laughs> but say, go back and say, okay, God, where in this day did I live and, and was conscious of you, and where was I not? Because it could be that you just ate lunch, and eating lunch in, in itself is not bad. But all of a sudden, at the end of the day, you look back and you go, you know what? I passed by so-and-so's desk, and I, I saw that they needed a friend, and I just kept going to lunch. That is bad. So do a daily inventory. Number three, find a trusted, grace-filled Christian and practice confessing. This is the number one thing about good churches. Different, no, I don't like the number one thing. It is a big difference between good churches and not good churches. And that is not good churches pretend like we all have it together. How can you preach the gospel if you already have it together? You don't need the gospel if you have it together. The truth is we're all messed up, broken people. If you don't feel that way, then either A, you're a liar, or B, you should be the one teaching. Practice confessing to someone that shows grace. We'll be honest with you, but shows grace. And then the fourth one is really a practical part, and that is when you start this, start with surface stuff and work your way to the deep stuff. Don't beat yourself up because you can't right away tell them about that really. It takes time to build trust, but you need to get there. We need to get there because here's the end result. You, the enemy is going to tell you, A, you don't need this, and B, oh my goodness, if they find out, I lead worship. I'm the pastor. I, you know, they find out, then they're going to completely reject me. This is what's going to happen when they find out. If it's truly somebody who walks in the grace of Christ, you're just like them. That's what they're going to find out. You're just like them. Heaven forbid. And they're going to extend you the same grace that they want to be extended. And then you're going to feel this incredible... (sighs) But it's going to take great courage. It's got to come from God to get there. You pray along with me.